Welcome everyone to episode 59 of the 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernica. My special guest this week is Dr. Christina Baxter. Now, Christina is the CEO of Emergency Response Tips, LLC. Previously, she was the Seaborne Program Manager for the Department of Defense's Combating Terrorism Technical Support Office. She's earned her bachelor degree in chemistry and environmental science from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and a PhD in analytical chemistry from the Georgia Institute of Technology. She's on a bunch of different NFPA committees, but she's currently the chairperson of Hazardous Material WMD operations. She's also on NFPA 1585 contamination control with yours truly. So she knows a whole lot about what we're exposed to on the fire scene and back at the firehouse. And we're going to discuss all that on this episode, plus what we can do to reduce those exposures and also what we can do to decon or clean ourselves off from these different exposures. So without further ado, let's bring her in, Dr. Christina Baxter. All right, welcome everyone to this week's episode of The 25 Live. My name is Jim Bernick and my special guest this week is Dr. Christina Baxter. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jim. Thanks for having me. Of course. How are you doing so far? Oh, wonderful. I live in Florida. I mean, can't be any better than that. Yeah. You were just telling me when we were off the air that you had to find your shoes. You haven't wore actual shoes in five months. <laughs> we always laugh about it because when we have to go somewhere, it's like you can't just go teach in flip-flops anymore. So, but the great thing about the good thing about this whole COVID going on is that this is the longest I've been home since 1995 the longest before that was about three weeks and so i've been home mostly for five months that's so, awesome shorts flip-flops walking on the beach it's great I, i've enjoyed my time here too but i haven't been able to do any of the beach or any anything crazy like that i'll stick to florida beach <laughs> yeah 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 anyway all right way to start off the jealousy like two minutes into this all right anyways so you're all about all the, everything we're exposed to as firefighters. I mean, hazmat's kind of your background. Um, I know one of the things I always preach about is reducing our exposures, but that's that's a pretty general statement. So if you would, I'm just going to this up to you and have at it, and I'll just sit back and relax, really. You know, as firefighters, what are some of the things that we're exposed to? And then the kind of the next question, the follow-up would be, how do we reduce that exposure? Well, I'll start with the follow-up, and then we'll go into the exposures, because the follow-up- You're already breaking the rules. I'm breaking the rules completely. That's, <laughs> that's how I work. So the follow-up is, if we minimize our exposure to smoke, then we can solve a huge portion of our exposures. Does that mean we aren't gonna fight fire anymore? Absolutely not. But what it does mean is that we need to have our SCBA on when we are in smoke and in a smoke plume so it doesn't just drop off the minute we come out of a working fire. Once we get out of the smoke plume and we can minimize our exposure to our lungs, then we have to worry only about the dermal. And so dermal exposure has really been something I've been focusing on for the last 15 years or so in trying to minimize that as our second route of exposure. And the good news is most of our 
people that we work with are very competent at taking a shower. I'm not going to say most because not all. We do have some that probably don't take showers well. But in this case, showering with soap and water is a fantastic solution to almost all of the issues that we have. So I'll go back in now and because I'm just kind of mess with you and turn things around and go back into what are we actually exposed to? And so that's a really hard question. And the answer lies in a lot of different pieces. So the fire, depending upon what your role is. So if you are a search team, you're doing suppression activities, you are the pump operator, you are doing overhaul. Each one of these things has a different exposure profile. And that exposure profile is really dependent upon how close you are to what is burning, the temperature at which it's burning, the cooling effects from the water going onto the fire and getting smoldering versus complete combustion. Each of these things makes a big difference. And then another very important factor is when you're on these fire scenes, every scene is different, right? The material that's burning is critical. So when we start going into a room in contents, let's just say you have a small kitchen fire. You go in, you put it out, you walk back out. Not a big event, not something that we bring the whole department in for. Well, some may, who knows? Um, but depends upon whose kitchen it is, I guess. But in this case, you're really going in and doing a quick, put the fire out, check for extension, you're done with it. It's a quick scene. You go back to the station, hopefully you shower, but this is where we start getting into the fact that on some of those quick calls, people may not shower immediately after. And it's those products of combustion that get on your turnout gear, around your turnout gear, and through your turnout gear. So we have fantastic protective equipment today. We have turnout gear that allows us to go farther into the seat of the fire. We have really good gloves that allow us to not burn our hands. Um, most people use the thumblets so that their turnout jacket does not reach up when they go to reach. Um, some people like me may not be that smart. And because the arms weren't long enough to fit the body, <laughs> cut those. And so I have a great scars all around my wrist from little, little tiny burns. But when you start looking at these things that we have, we have great protective equipment, whether it's respiratory or whether it's dermal. And the reality of it is, is we probably have over-engineered all of our protective equipment to minimize the effects of these exposures and really focusing on the heat in the temperature. So now, so some of the newer firefighters may not remember, but years ago, as you went into a fire, your first sign that you needed to start backing out some was the burning behind your ears. Okay. Now you don't feel that anymore because you're wearing the hood. So while we've provided more protection and you don't have the burning behind your ears anymore, it does allow you to get farther into the seat of the fire and maybe put yourself in a bit more of a dangerous situation than we generally would have planned. And all of that occurs because we were trying to make the turnout gear more thermally uh, protective. 
Now, when you start going forward and look at the things that we're exposed to, you end up having a broad swath of different things. Obviously, everybody talks about carbon monoxide, very serious material, 100% a threat, 100% an inhalation threat. So our SCBA is our friend. It takes care of business. We're good to go. The next one that people talk about a lot is hydrogen cyanide, especially today as plastics and things are burning. They'll release huge amounts of hydrogen cyanide. Any of those types of materials will really give you a large amount. And the issue with that is in most fires, well, actually in all the fires that we have data on, the hydrogen cyanide levels never reach the level where they can actually penetrate skin. So hydrogen cyanide can't penetrate the skin until it's well over, I believe it's about 800 parts per million, which is about three times the lethal dose. So again, we have another material, high hazard material, especially if we're talking about hydrogen cyanide as an inhalation threat, but we're taking care of that by having our SCBA on. So as we have firefighters with CO exposures and firefighters with HCN exposures, we know that that's because their SCBA was not on during the entire period that it needed to be. So now let's step forward to some of the ones we don't generally talk about as much. The acid gases. So from a hazmat perspective, we call them acid gases, but it's, think about hydrochloric acid. You know, when I say you're getting hydrochloric acid on you, you would all be like freaking out, this is a hazmat. But in most every fire, we get hydrogen chloride, which is hydrochloric acid gas. And people don't think about it. When I say we have hydro hydrogen fluoride or hydrochloric acid, people hear HF and they're like, no, hazmat, we're not going to deal with that. But we do get hydrogen fluoride gas. And so when you start looking at these things, you get a lot of these acid gases deposited on your gear. And you need to make sure that you're not getting it to go around your gear or through your gear. And it's all about time profiles and about managing your incident properly. So one of the things that I like to say, uh, and I always ask this when I'm teaching a fire exposure class, and I'm always shocked still, which I, I suppose I'm a bit naive that I'm hoping that as we've brought forward more and more science behind fire exposure, that people would start saying, you know, maybe that science has got something here. But I always ask people first, when was the last time you were fitted for your turnout gear? And I, the question I always do is say, okay, how many people were fitted within the last year? And I am shocked at the lack of hands that go up because you should be fitted annually for your turnout gear. Because the fit of your gear is what is going to provide you a lot of the protection. Because as your gear has gaps or as it is too big, so how many people, I can say for myself, um, probably a year doesn't go by where I don't um, expand in size. Let's put it in a nicer way. <laughs> okay. I love food. Okay. So when I was first fitted for turnout gear many years ago, I can assure you 
that that turnout gear and what I would be fitted for today are probably nowhere near in the same size range, okay? But you also have different stages of life where you, um, different stages for women firefighters of the month where your turnout gear may fit differently. And you're trying to minimize the amount of material that goes through all the seams and interfaces. So when we have those interfaces and you have kind of openings where it's, it's not quite buckled down, nice and smooth, then you're gonna increase the amount of material that gets inside of your gear. Same type of thing if you're wearing gear that is far too large for you, you'll end up with a chimney effect. And so every time you lean over, think about when you're wearing a big baggy sweatshirt and you lean over and it kind of gets a gap and then you stand up and that gap flattens down, but you create kind of a little bit of movement of air underneath the shirt. And that's what causes the chimney effect. And that chimney effect of wearing gear that's too large will actually start pulling more and more material up onto your chest, into your areas, okay? Same type of thing when you go to walk and your pant legs are open. You start pulling material up into, onto your legs, above the boot interface. And so it's all about all of these different pieces and what do we do to minimize our total exposure? So we talked about the acid gases, but there's a whole lot of other ones. And the acid gases, I think, are interesting, but they're not what I would consider the most important. As we start getting above that, and one of the reasons I say that, if I told you, you were, we were going to get hydrochloric acid or on your skin, are you going to be happy? Chances are good. You're going to say, yeah, I'm not, going to, I'm not going for that. Let's get the newbie in here. Well, reality is... For hydrochloric acid to interact with your skin in gas phase, it's usually upwards of about 10,000 parts per million or 1% solution. Okay, so if I told you I was going to take a 1% hydrochloric acid solution, put it on your skin, you're probably going to be like, yeah, I'm not really going for that. But 1% versus gives you a little bit more clarity. That 1% is what is going to start to interact. So when we look at hydrochloric acid on a fire scene as hydrochloric gas, the highest levels we've ever gotten are 150 parts per million for our measurements. We don't see any dermal absorption of that until about 3,000 parts per million. So yes, we're putting hydrogen chloride on your skin, but it's such a, such a low a level that it doesn't really interact. So it's understanding the levels and what those levels can do to you. So acid gases are important, but they're important as a respiratory hazard because those levels can really affect you respiratory-wise. So I want to get into some of the chemicals because, you know, dermal is my thing, um, that actually affect you from a dermal perspective. Um, and hopefully, let's see, when people are listening to this, I hope somebody's eating lunch because this... I think my research is a great way to either realize that I'm <laughs> quite strange or a way, it's a great dietary aid. So what we have done and for the last 15 years with a team of people is we've partnered up with a bunch of plastic surgeons 
and we get freshly excised human skin from tummy tucks, breast reductions, those types of things. We defat the skin, so it comes out in a nice steaming bucket, okay? Um, so sorry, folks, if you're not liking hot, steamy skin, but it's very cool, okay? So you get the skin, you defat it, and think about it like when we do permeation studies on chemical protective clothing. We're gonna do the same exact thing, but to human skin. So we challenge that skin with the different chemicals and find out what gets on the skin, we can measure, right? Because we're gonna challenge that. What gets in the skin, we're gonna have to do by subtraction, but what gets through the skin, we can also measure if we put it into another solution. So I need to look at those thermal penetration profiles and say, the amount that gets on, we're measuring on fire scenes. The amount that gets through is a medical countermeasure. You're going to have somebody um, like Dr. Burgess does fantastic studies on what gets through the skin. And then we're going to subtract out what gets in the skin that might be our total available exposure. And that gets really interesting because as we do that, we have challenged all of these different threat materials to the skin and said, okay, what is that profile? And as new threats come in, we keep adding in more and more of what we're studying. When we start getting things that interact with the skin and go through, um, it starts getting more into the organic materials. So the volatile organic compounds, the benzenes, toluenes, xylenes, the polyaromatic hydrocarbons, okay? The stuff that tastes really good on the outside of your steak, okay? The PAHs those things and some of the uh the phthalates and other chemicals we won't go into all the chemical structures because i'm probably the only geek that cares but when you start getting into these these materials go through your skin better okay so the way i like to think of it are the things that you feel on your helmet so when you're going down range you come back out and your helmet and the soot is really slimy on it. You pull your finger across the soot and you get this like waxy-ish almost feeling to the soot. Those are the organic materials that we're worried about. So when we get that heavier soot deposition onto the helmet, and I use the helmet, making the assumption that people clean their helmets every now and then. Okay, big assumption here. But if you clean your helmets and then you kind of feel the soot on the helmet, you'll know the types of materials and the levels of materials that you've been exposed to just kind of as a quick rule of thumb. So I use that and say, if I have heavy soot deposition that feels kind of waxy and sticky as I move across it, like the tar-like soot, I've got to shower as soon as physically possible. Because that means I have a lot of these organic materials deposited onto my skin, potentially. Okay, so that's what's gonna get on the turnout gear, through the turnout gear, and around the turnout gear and deposit on my skin. Now I have a potential problem because we know that almost all of these materials are carcinogenic and will cause long-term damage. So to me, there's kind of a good news story in all of this. Over the last 15 years, there have been so many fire exposure studies done where we profile the materials produced during burns that we kind of have a good idea of what types of materials are going to be produced. Every fire is going to be very different in terms of how much of each material is produced, 
but we can kind of bound it and say the worst case scenario for each chemical was X and say on this one fire, we made this much. And that's the highest we ever measured, but we're going to use that as our data point and say worst case scenario, if we had this chemical at this amount, we can wash it off within two hours. It's not going to make it through the skin. And that's what I've been focusing on is finding out how much do we have there, then depositing that amount on the skin and figuring out how long does it take to start on the skin and make its way through the skin. Because that's going to tell me how much was on it and how much got into it. That ratio there in the time profile is what's going to tell me how long I have to shower. And that's where we've come up with, you hear a lot of like IAFF with the golden hour, shower within the hour. That's where that comes from. We know 100% our skin is a fantastic barrier material, right? We know that because we're alive. Okay, if our skin was not a good barrier, we would end up having all of our body fluids leak out of our body. So skin is a fantastic barrier. When we start looking at these materials on it and measuring that profile of time it takes to go from depositing on the skin to getting into the skin to getting through the skin, critical. Because if we can keep it down to a certain level and know what that profile is, that tells us that we have this long to shower after a fire scene to get the material off of our skin and minimize any exposure due to dermal penetration. And that's where I've focused for years is on the dermal side. Because frankly, we have respiratory protection when worn properly that will protect us from all the other stuff. So from a hazmat perspective to the fire scene, we know what we're exposed to. We know the maximum levels we are learning the speed at which it goes through the skin, but we know that by washing with soap and water, we can remove these things from the skin. Matching that time profile is critical. And so I wanna start talking about these organics that we deal with and go into some of the ones that I really care about the most. Um, so the volatile organic compounds, the benzenes, toluenes, uh, these things we're gonna see Pretty much, if there's a fire, you're going to see it. You're going to see it at levels that I would call average from a hazmat perspective. Um, they're not going to be above your immediately dangerous to life and health where you would be required to wear an SCBA if you were in a hazmat experience. But in a fire experience at the elevated temperature, it's a bit more of an issue, right? Everything's going to move faster at the higher temperature. So the VOCs play a big role, but we can wash those off. The aldehydes, so formaldehyde. We hear about formaldehyde and acrolein all the time. Acrolein's actually worse for you. Um, we get higher levels of acrolein by far, but we talk about formaldehyde because everybody knows what formaldehyde is. You know, um, definitely, I mean, I think most of us had to use it on frogs in high school and stuff. So. Formaldehyde, we know what formaldehyde will do. It'll pickle us. So when we start looking at formaldehyde, think about every building that you go into that has those drop ceilings or 
the worst case scenario to me is when you send your kids to school and they're in one of those uh, mobile classrooms that is all made up of that press type material. And then they're never watertight. So you get water getting into those and then it starts releasing formaldehyde, which is the binder in almost all of that pressed material. So as water gets on it, it releases it. And you see all kinds of uh, effect, health effects in kids because they're getting low level formaldehyde exposure over time. So a lot of asthmatic response, that kind of thing. But you know from that, those types of studies that our formaldehyde and acrolein levels can be quite high. Same type of thing from uh, carpets with the adhesives that are also released formaldehyde. So a lot of that, again, wash it off, you're good. The one that I really focus on most of my time is the polyaromatic hydrocarbons. Now, we know, we've known back since the time of Percival Potts, who was our uh, chimney sweep, right? So we've been in the 1800s, early 1900s, we've known that PAHs cause cancer. We've known that they cause scrotal cancer, especially. Uh, when we look at I know you've had Jeff Stoll on before. When you look at some of Jeff's studies um, and you look at, he had a gray turn, like a, a, a gray pair of uh, sweatsuit underneath the turnout gear. So you could see exactly where water made it through the turnout gear during some studies. You can see that that whole chest area all the way down to the crotch area are areas where you ended up getting water through. Well, if you're getting water through, everything's getting through, right? Now, think about that. When we just said, we've known since the 18 and early 1900s that getting these PAHs will cause scrotal cancer, so testicular cancer today. Um, but we know it. It's getting there every time, but we're not worrying about washing. Well, I hate to tell you, but the thinnest area of skin on the human body is the scrotum. So you have to be really careful and please, dear God, do not drop trousers on the scene and start scrubbing to clean up. Um, I have seen it occur once. It was, it needed to be done, but uh, please hide behind something. None I've, of I've been asked over the years, I wish, you know, I wish I nickel for each time, but hey, can you wipe my balls? I mean, I've, I, you know how firefighters are. So yeah, I get, I yeah. get that question all the time. But reality is we've had it before where, and okay, hopefully people understand. I, I know a lot of your listeners may not know me. I am not a mature individual. So frankly, I think I really do all of these studies just so I can say scrotum time and time again, because it's a funny word um, to me. So I actually called one of my aunts and just let her know that, Hey, I said it this many times today. Teach it. What, what was that? Who'd you, who did you call? Aunt. My uncle's wife. Your aunt. Aunt. Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> Sorry. All right. I'm in that area in Massachusetts where we add R's where they don't belong, but we take them out in other areas. So on average, we have the appropriate number of R's. Okay. So, but <laughs> when we start talking about this, on this call, it was from folks who had done a snag and grab. So there had been a ammonia leak and the guys had done um, 
a snag and grab because there was a viable victim. They could see them in their turnout gear, in their FCBA. They went downrange. They grabbed the guy, dragged him out while the hazmat was in room. Absolutely agree with what they've done there. Completely agree. But one of the guys was sweating a little bit more than the others. And if you haven't had a higher concentration of ammonia against your skin before, it will start to burn and itch pretty significantly. So this poor guy was dancing a jig. Now, being a mature individual, I wouldn't have started to giggle, but I did start to giggle, but we did get water on his crotch, but we might have laughed a lot while we did it. So the poor guy never will forgive us. But as you go forward, you have to remember that this, and this is one thing why I've always said, I, I worry about the fact that everybody wants to just do wiping down of certain areas of the skin on scene and not focus as much about getting back as quickly as possible to wash all the skin. And mainly it's about the guys getting back and washing completely because there are certain things that we need to stop from getting on the skin. In a so the way to stop it from getting on the skin is no more fighting fires. Not gonna happen, right? Just not happening. So if we're gonna go down range, we need to know what that time profile is. We know that these PAHs will start to penetrate the surface of the skin in between one to two hours. So that's why we always say you've got to shower within the hour. And especially when you have on your helmet, the soot that is a bit sticky. That will tell you, you have got to shower as soon as physically possible. And so the way I teach it is as soon as logistically possible. Now, what I mean by that is, if you are on a major fire and you are not going to be able to leave at any time in the future, there may be a, a reason to bring on some of the decon showers that we use for hazmat and let guys during rehab wash some parts. Get a little bit of a shower and get back in. Yes, logistically, it's a pain in the ass. Excuse my language. You can bleep that. Um, I didn't say the F word yet though, so I'm good. Um, the, in this case, you really have to start thinking about showers. And we'll get into that further. Yeah. Are, are, are wipes an option on scene? So wipes are an option. I like to just take soap and water and I keep a spray bottle of soap and water and I buy those, um, I don't, they're, they're really like thick paper towels. You know, they're disposable, they're one-time use um, and you just wet that with soap and water and wipe face, hands, reach down below, wipe, you know, uh, do not open and drop drawers, please. Okay. I've seen it enough. It's not pretty. So, but really it's about, I, I don't use any of the special wipes. Um, I haven't found any need to that. I find that the cheapest thing that we know works is soap and water. So now obviously a lot of the wipes um, will have surfactant and stuff in there. Some of them may call it micelle. Some of it may call it soap. They'll call it all different things doing the same thing. It's a surfactant that's going to break down that oily residue. 
Uh, when we are worrying about the wipes and things, we have to worry about what else is in there. We want to make sure there's no dermal penetrators, things that will enhance dermal penetration. So things that enhance dermal penetration would be um, things like aloe, okay? We put it on a baby's bottom to give them that nice soft feeling. You don't need to put that on your uh, firefighter's face or anything when they're starting to do this stuff. It's really about just getting soap and water on them. Now, I always say don't use alcohol because alcohol will dry the skin, cause more problems, and will also increase penetration for a lot of materials. But remember, for all of these wipes and things, to be able to package them in a sealed package with water and a material, we have to inhibit microbial growth, right? Otherwise, you'd open up all these wipes and you'd have mold and mildew and stuff. So there's going to be a tiny amount of alcohol in there, which is just to inhibit mold growth. I believe you can have, I think it's up to half a percent of alcohol in a solution, still call it alcohol-free, because it's there for that specific purpose. It's just to inhibit microbial growth. So something to consider, you, you may have small amounts. The, the limit, you can get as little as you can that's going to be critical because you don't want to add things that actually increase skin penetration. So, but again, I, I try to stick with uh, the simple thing. You can make up soap and water solutions. We use Dawn dish detergent. You use like a tablespoon of Dawn into a quart of water. Uh, once a month, it gets disposed of and you make another tablespoon of Dawn in a quart of water and you have some of a spray bottle and you spray that onto the wipes and just use that to wipe folks off. Cheap, easy, saves a lot of money, but also will save you um, some of the exposure time. That does not negate the need for a shower, okay? Because you're only covering certain areas. You're covering the areas where you might get large deposits, okay? Around your face piece, around where you have interfaces, um, your wrists, any of those areas. Frankly, the most important area when you take off your gloves, your hands, because your gloves are the most contaminated thing you have. So making sure that you've got your hands clean because you don't want to do touch transfer with what got on your hands. And how many people actually wash their gloves regularly? Very few, okay? So your gloves are literally the most disgusting uh, part. And then your helmet and and frankly, folks, the liners of your helmets, they really need to be cleaned. <laughs> okay, it's something a lot of people don't think about. No, they'll go their whole helmet life and not clean the inside. That's, by NFPA rules, that helmet life is what, 10 years? Okay. Yes. Now, by real reality, it's what, 30 years? Okay. So when you think about that, that liner has had everything you've come into contact with and you're putting it right on your head. I've got so many members of my department right where their helmet sits, wherever that liner is. They've had they've had skin cancer. Yep. I mean, and I'm Not talking surprised. I'm talking double digits. Yeah. But that should make sense to everybody because you're repeatedly putting cancer-causing materials against your skin and letting it sit there for a while, and then heating up that skin to increase permeation, and then putting it right back on there. They're made to be cleaned. 
So it's not going to hurt it to clean it. It does not in any way today make you look cooler to have dirty gear. Okay. Today, cool is clean gear. I mean, I like to say that at the point of knowledge we're in right now, cancer in the fire service for that generation of firefighters starting with us today should not be an issue. But it's upon those firefighters who unfortunately are beyond, you had the exposures already, chances are good, they're gonna catch up with you at some point. Now, those firefighters need to change the way they do business so that the young firefighters coming on look up to what they're doing and say, that's how we're gonna do business too. Because we know what causes cancer. We know where we're getting exposed to it. We know the solutions to it. Wear an SCBA, okay? And wash and shower as soon as physically possible. If we don't teach the next generation that that is critical, then they're gonna follow this same paradigm we have. And it's upon all of us to make sure that that next generation doesn't have cancer in the fire service as their legacy. That's our legacy to leave. It's not a good legacy, but we need to leave it and move on so that the next generation doesn't have it. And we know what to do, but we have to change the way we do business to do it. It's, it's funny you say that. I just had an article that came out talking about training our recruits from the start, teaching them what they're up against. You lost it. But so I can do that. I could talk to them, but they're still going to end up out in the street. And they're still going to look at those senior firefighters yep. and follow their lead. And a lot of times, unfortunately, given to that peer pressure. And that's the thing. And when you look at that and you say, guys, is this the legacy you want to leave? Is another generation of guys going through cancer? And I can tell you, if you find one guy in your department who has gone through the treatments and recovered, or who is going through the treatments and knows that he is never going to recover, He's the one that the, the young guys need to be talking to, but that's not the way it works. They look up to the guys who are on the scene with them. And I say, when I say guys, I mean guys, gals, everything. So try not to be exclusive here. We are inclusive. The girls are, are participating too, but we don't have to worry about scrotums for us. So thank God. Um, they're just not very pretty. I'm sorry. Um, but <laughs> sorry. But when we speak, start speak for yourself, come on. Come, okay, come on. You've mine's seen. mine's adorable. I'm just saying. <laughs> Anyways, you're gonna have to bleep that out. So, <laughs> first time I've ever had that in a, in a talk. My scrotum's adorable. Well then, okay. Sorry. <laughs> for those of you who don't know Jim, uh, we won't go there. You may know him better someday. Who knows? <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> we're going to have a little uh, everybody's going to vote later on who's got the uh, pretty scrotum so let's go back to PAHs though because now we're back at scrotums again PAHs are going to deposit there and they are going to be a problem they are going to go through the area and they're going to go through that area about 400 times faster than they're going to go through other areas of the skin okay and that's why we actually harp on this. We try to make it funny, but wash your balls. Just do it, okay? Now, when we start looking at some of these materials and 
obviously when we hear PAHs or polyaromatic hydrocarbons, there's a whole bunch of them. It's a whole class of chemicals. But one that I want to bring to everybody's attention is one that's called benzoapyrene. That one's a known carcinogen. We've been dealing with this one for years. But the issue that we have with that is as a particulate, okay, it's not a gas, it's a particulate, but we have had it penetrate right through turnout gear. And when I say penetrate through turnout gear, I mean three-layer turnout gear. Talking our outer shell, we're talking our moisture barrier, and we're talking our insulation layer. Deposit, go right through those and deposit on the skin. Now, we've always known that it's going to go through interfaces. It's going to go through um, bellows effect, all of that type of stuff, chimney effect. All of that's going to help it come up. But when we go through and realize that it's going right through the turnout here, we have a problem. So when we start looking at that, some of the gas phase ones that we know go through the turnout here, naphthalene, phenanthrene, pyrene, foranthine, you start hearing these chemical names, you know those will go right through your turnout here as a gas. And we also have a whole series of particulates that are pHs, are tiny particulates. You can't see them with the naked eye, um, but they'll go right through your turnout here. And so we know that if we are on fires that produce large amounts of these, okay, heavy soot, gonna produce a lot of these we know that we have to get this washed off as soon as physically possible because it's going to be everywhere on the body, not just those areas you can quickly reach. So when I start to look at some of these things, um, I like to say, and I have a chart that shows it, but when I show a scene, if I have ever pre-planned that scene as a hazmat call, okay, so if I have ever done my pre-planning on different fire scenes, and I say, this facility I worry about from a hazmat perspective, then I want to bring a full hazmat call to that scene when I have a fire there. Because we know that the chemicals that are there and the chemicals that are burning and the plastics and things that are holding them, we're gonna have some problems. And we want to shower on scene to get that material off of us as quick as possible. So we're going to call it decontaminate there, full decontamination, full body. I prefer to have the individual shower stalls where people can go in, do a full shower, get out, get into um, whatever extra gear they have and get back out of it. Now, we also have the types of fires where we've never pre-planned it. And I call those the preliminary exposure reduction fires. Those are the fires where we may, as they come out of the fire, we may wet them down to keep the particulates from going airborne. Okay, that's going to wash off, hopefully, a large portion of the PAHs. I know that Kenny Fent and uh, Gavin Horn and their team had done a lot of work on measuring how much PAHs that are deposited on the turnout gear get washed off by doing that original wash. So it does provide us a lowering of our total amount that is there for us to be exposed to. But we need to go a little bit further on some of the other ones. On this case, we're just removing that gear from the person to minimize total exposure. So the issue that we're going to have is that as we go in to different types of fires, you're going to have, as you go in repeatedly, you're going to have building up that material just continues to build upon. It doesn't just get a certain level and stay there. You're gonna get repeated exposures and you're gonna keep building upon that exposure. So if you had exposure of one on entry one, 
then after entry two, you're gonna have an exposure of two. After entry three, you're gonna have an exposure of three because it's just additive. It doesn't just go away and minimize it. So you're gonna to have to remember that. That's critical when it comes to fire uh, instructors. Okay, so if you are doing uh, continuous live burns and you're an instructor, we have got to do a better job of rotating those instructors that go in more uh, readily so that we don't continue to increase their exposure and let them shower as soon as possible. Most of these materials shower within an hour to two hours, you're, you're doing pretty good uh, to get them off your skin and minimizing total exposure. So as we start looking at these, I guess to me, it becomes really important that we focus in on how can we minimize our total exposure over time. And that's always gonna be minimizing the amount of smoke that you stand in. Okay, so if you can stay below the plane of the smoke, all the better. We've always known that, right? If we can use different ways of keeping the smoke from getting us, okay? Remember the old water curtains? that were great for keeping smoke from moving past a certain area. Those worked. We got rid of those years ago. They're probably in storage in everybody's fire department somewhere. But if you have a scene where you're trying to minimize that smoke from moving out because you have a logistics footprint where you can't move things, a water curtain works really well. Or even a fog nozzle to keep the smoke from coming over to that area. Let's say the command post is closer than it needs to be or logistically has to be closer in. Can we push the smoke away from them so those people without an SCBA on are minimizing their exposure? The other thing that we have to think about and maybe do differently, and I haven't quite figured out how operationally to do it, is the pump operator, okay? The pump operator is one of our most exposed people because they are generally the closest in without having the appropriate gear on. And that gear often is turnout gear that's not closed up properly. And very rarely do you see a pump operator wearing their SCBA or any respiratory protection for that matter. Okay. But very rarely do you see the pump operator positioned outside of the smoke plume. So that person is not only breathing in large amounts, but they're also getting it covering them head to toe. And nobody thinks about the pump operator and the fact that their exposure, total exposure profile, is probably higher than anybody else on the scene. And so we have to think about ways and be smarter about the way that we either position the pump operator or that we provide them with some different protection, something that allows them to do their job safely and effectively, but also minimize their exposure over time. Okay, if for any reason you're going back to the station and you're blowing your nose and getting out all that nice black snot that we always had, okay, you had a significant exposure, okay? When you have all that black grit or you're coughing, okay, hacking a Louie out and you've got this big old black Louie, not good, okay, unless you were chewing tobacco at the time, which is another bad thing. Uh, but <laughs> still, when you start thinking about all these things, it really adds up. So it's about trying to minimize that. And when we start going into that, one of the things I wanted to bring up is overhaul, okay? How many departments out there are still allowing people to downgrade their respiratory protection during overhaul? 
I'd say it's a very high percentage. And it's a problem. Let me ask you that. Um, a lot of them are still basing, you know, they're, they're bringing in a, a four or five gas meter and they're looking at that. And you mentioned it earlier, the HCN, the CO. And when they are within normal limits, they go, okay, take your mask off. And I want you, I'm, I'm serving this up to you here. Destroy that for me and everybody else, please. Okay. Hydrogen cyanide and CO are respiratory hazards. They are significant respiratory hazards. They are not the only respiratory hazards, okay? They are not the materials that are causing us to have cancer over time. The problem that we have with most of the materials that we've talked about, there is no way today that I can give you to measure the amount of PAHs in the air on a fire scene in real time. We're working on it, okay? I'm flying up to Boston next week for an experiment on that. But we don't have a way today to measure that in real time. So what I recommend, if you really think you have got to have some type of levels to use to downgrade, the levels that you should use you should be measuring CO, right? Because that's going to be a problem. Hydrogen cyanide, yeah, go ahead and measure it. It's really not one of the ones that I would be measuring for. But you can. And so we'll just recommend that. VOCs, okay? If you have a four gas meter, add a PID into it, okay? A photonization detector for measuring total VOCs, okay? If the total VOCs are greater than 20 parts per million, you're wearing an SCBA, okay? Straight, easy to do. Uh, take a formaldehyde tube. So just remember the old Drager tubes, glass tubes, mm -hmm. break off the ends, they're cheap, they're like a dollar or two. Pull an air sample through it. If the formaldehyde tube is measuring greater than 20 parts per million, you're not taking off your SCBA. And that is measuring both acrolein and formaldehyde. That's why we use the formaldehyde tube because it's cross-sensitive, gets you both. If you use a hydrochloric acid tube as well, you'll get all your acid gases because they're cross-sensitive. So if you use the hydrochloric acid tube and you have less than 50 parts per million, okay, there's another one. And then the other issue you have is that the temperature, the temperature has to be at or below ambient temperature for generally an hour. So if you're gonna do overhaul, you're gonna wait an hour then, make sure that temperature drops down so that if you're using any of those canisters and things that people want to use in place, that the gas isn't moving too fast to move right through. They're designed for ambient temperature, not for high temperature. So I have a table that I use um, that just says, you know, based upon the laws, you know, using OSHA and NIOSH and saying what levels we can be exposed to, here's what I recommend. Now, you can take it the next way and say, based upon all of the literature that I've gone through and measured and seen everybody who's done different measurements on scene, on average, VOCs are around 40 parts per million. And they have spikes up to 330 during overhaul. The law says, or recommends in this case, that we use an SCBA over 20 parts per million. So on average, our VOCs in overhaul, the volatile organics, benzene, toluene, xylene, those things, are double the amount that we should be wearing an SCBA for. 
So when it comes down to it, you should just wear your SCBA. What I've gone through from a scientific basis, VOCs and CO still push you to an SCBA all the time. Hydrogen cyanide, formaldehyde, and acid gases will push you to it most of the time. And then I went through and also did a quick calculation based upon the gases we're seeing. If we wanted to get a canister that would pull those gases out, then the only ones available on the commercial market are the CBRN canisters, which to get the amount of the CBRN canister we need, we'd have to go with a cap four. Those are 30 to $50 for each canister and their one-time use. So scientifically, we're going towards wearing an SCBA all the time. Economically, we're also going towards SCBA all the time because we have the ability to refill our air bottles, cylinders, okay? We can't just reuse a carbon-based filter because they, they're in humidity in the air and it'll use up the carbon. So then it's just going right through for you. So both economically and scientifically, you have no choice. And frankly, uh, if OSHA wanted to come down on people, they could easily come down on people for doing it because the levels that we're measuring in overhaul exceed the levels in which OSHA states you must wear an SCBA. Okay. And so when you start looking at it, you've got legal, scientific, and economic basis why you should be wearing your SCBA completely through a wall. So when I see it and people are taking them off, I'm like, don't come back and say, well, I had these exposures because of my job. No, you had your exposures because you weren't following proper protocol for your job. So as we get further in, that's where we'll end up being. So where are your SCBA? Now, the other thing we talked about, um, I have another table that I make for folks that is kind of a little um, poster. And it talks about preliminary exposure reduction considerations. And you've heard me say a few times while we're talking about the type of soot, okay? So we divide them into heavy exposure. So soot that is very sticky. We have medium exposure that the soot, you can see it, but you can actually wipe it and move it easily. And then we have light exposure where you may not even have really a big soot deposition, okay? On heavy exposure, where we have to really pull to move it and it's sticky, those types of fires are usually a chemical fire, okay? So this, the garden shed, the garage, the auto body shop, all of those types of places. They're a resident or office fire where you might've had asbestos, okay? And then flammable liquid fires. So interior operations where you might've had some flammable liquids burning, whether that's oils and fuels and that kind of stuff. Those ones, you really need to decon on scene. Those are your hazmat fires, okay? Shower at the station, gear has to be laundered immediately following that call. Medium exposures, those ones where you could move the soot, you're gonna go, um, those are all the other types of fires um, and you're gonna shower at the station and you're gonna launder your gear after so many uses. And then there's the light exposures where you very rarely get soot all over your helmet and it's really a, a room and contents quick knockdown. You may only launder your gear every six months, but you're still gonna shower at the station. So it's as simple as that, I think. Okay, very good. I have a few other questions I, I okay. kind of made notes of. 
because I, I let you, I gave you too much rope initially. <laughs> you just, no, it's fine. It's, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Let's talk about showers. When we get back to that station and we're going to take that shower, is it the same shower that I took this morning? Or is it, I mean, uh, hot and then cold or oh. activated charcoal soap? I mean, any, or is it just a shower? So a shower is what you need. A shower that is at skin temperature or slightly lower, not a hot, hot shower. So what you're trying to do is not open up your pores. You're trying to remove what is on your skin. So I always say if it feels like the shower is hot, it's too hot because generally when you feel the water that's at skin temperature, it's like lukewarm. You're like, oh, this isn't warm enough, but it's, it is. Shower, use soap, get that material off of you. And I'm not talking about any special soap. Use the soap you use. You're trying to get the surfactant, those suds, to actually get in and get that um, sticky material off of your skin. Okay? It's very simple. Now, if you are taking uh, a shower and you don't have a regular household shower or a regular flow, higher flow shower, you really have to use extra scrubbing. So if you're in one of those low flow um, showers, now not a home low flow, a home low flow is enough. But remember, we're trying to use the shower as a physical removal process as well. So we have to have high enough flow rate as well to do that. So if it's just barely spritzing at you, you gotta do some, something extra. And if you don't have a shower and there's no way you can get to a shower fast enough, well, if we were on the scene, we had water, okay? It's cold but it'll work. So, yeah. Okay. What about, you're going to punch me next time you see me, saunas. So saunas, um, I'm not a fan, just from a dermal toxicology perspective, because they open up the pores and will allow uh, more interchange. However, I say that with a caveat that there has been very little scientific studies done with the exception of, I don't know if you saw it, Dr. Burgess, Jeff Burgess's paper that came out in April. He, yeah. He, it's in the arch archives. You can listen to him. He talks about it then. Yeah. And now that is the first scientific study that I have seen even looking at saunas and it was pretty much inconclusive so far. Like he said, you need to go forward and do more work but he hasn't shown that it is harmful. Definitely couldn't show that it was beneficial, but it also didn't show that it was harmful. I always would have assumed based upon the science behind how saunas work that it's harmful. And so I'm really excited to see where he takes this because if he's showing that it's not harmful, it may not be beneficial either, but I was more worried about the departments that had them that they could be causing more harm than good. So again, remove what's on the skin before you do anything. Okay, take the regular shower and then let's all sit back and wait for Dr. Burgess to, I mean, he's probably one of like my idols in this area. So he's just, his work is something everybody should be following in the fire service. I, I told him he could never retire. No, yeah, definitely. Yes. We just have to get blackmail to keep him. <laughs> figure something out. Yeah. 
All right. Well, let me switch to Fire Gear. That is, okay. as you mentioned, that has evolved a lot in the recent years. I think I think a lot of it had to do with the fast test that's about five years old now. That where we saw the, you know, how much our neck was exposed in the interface and how smoke was going anywhere and everywhere. Yeah. So we now have all these different particular blocking items within our gear. That that has to be. You have to be, it sounds like you, you would be excited about that. The fact that we're now limiting all these different chemicals definitely. on our skin. Oh, definitely. We are limiting a lot of them. Not all of them though. And that's the issue. So we've got to remember that these are not impermeable garments. And these hoods and things are not impermeable. The critical effect is going to be, especially with some of the hoods and things, is washing that gear. Okay, we've got to wash it to get that material back out of it. So as those PAHs and things deposit on the hoods, wash them. Okay, I would rather see people have multiple hoods than almost anything because it's going to allow them to swap that out and keep going. But please, dear God, wash them. Absolutely. So, yeah, and there's so much coming along in the fire service area of new materials and different things. And it's just, it's an area that's really trying to change. And we're, we're just waiting to see balancing the protection with the exposure with, and it's a whole balancing act to make sure that we don't make a decision that may affect one thing and greatly affect another. Well, that's, that's a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you next then. <laughs> here's another reason you can punch me i'll serve you up a volleyball here along the same topic what about all this pfoa these pfas chemicals so, c8 c6 gen x whatever it may be that you know this so pfos the group of chemicals so like pahs are a group of chemicals pfos are another group and they are all fluorinated chemicals and they have some characteristics which make them fantastic for things that we want to use them for. But they are um, our, this current generation's environmental disaster. Okay. So when we think about the um, Chromium 6 from back when Aaron Brockovich movie, okay, that was that generation's environmental disaster. PFAS, it's ours. Okay. This stuff is everywhere. We all have it in our, I mean, pretty much everybody that's ever been measured has levels in their body. So it's problematic. Now, we have to remember also that there's reasons that we use those chemicals. So when you think about the moisture barriers in our turnout here, that moisture barrier is a fluorinated material. It is a full sheet polymer. So think of it as like if you had um, a full sheet or, or a hard plastic bowl versus tiny little pieces or liquid uh, plastic. Which one's going to expose you worse? The one that's liquid that you can get into. So that thin sheet that's in our moisture barrier, probably not much of a problem. It provides a great way to minimize some of the chemicals coming through, as well as uh, providing us from having the steam burst. Now, the other issue we have are the PFOS type materials that are on our DWR finishes, okay? 
So the finishes that we put on the outer material of our turnip here, okay? So on the outer coat, we have these finishes. Those finishes are required to meet the NFPA standards. Okay, so you have to have a water repellency and you have to have an oil repellency. Well, get to the water repellency. But it plays two roles. It gives us the water repellency and the oil repellency. So it's, it's kind of like a stain guard, right? So think about every one of us, if we have couches in our homes or furniture like that, we have that on there. If you have carpet in your home, you have the same stuff on there. And it's the repellency for keeping stains off of it. So how many people bought Scotchgard over the years to make sure that if their kids spilled something on the carpet, it would clean up? Same thing, okay? So now we have it all around us. On our turnout gear, there's been a push of how much are we getting exposed to from that? So the good news is most people have a very low exposure. Uh, the reason behind that is we've been able to measure over time, we, we're just finishing some stuff, I'm hoping to publish it soon, of uh, how much material the aging of turnout gear, so the high temperature, the laundering, all of these things, what do they do for the PFOS type materials going all the way down to the C6s and things as well? How much of them come off during the different washings and levels? What happens with aging? And so we've been studying that and trying to figure out exactly how much comes off because then we can figure out how much maximum is available for dermal exposure, right? Because inhalation exposure, our SCBA and the fire service is taking care of that for wearing it properly. So now we can figure out what our dermal exposure is. The good news is um, PFOA has been studied. So the one variant has actually been studied in skin studies. And that was in 2011, NIOSH, uh, Jennifer Franco and a team published some papers on PFOA through human skin. The good news is it really does not go through skin in the temperature and the profile of which we would wear it. So if we left it on skin for 24 hours completely and had a continuous exposure at that high level, then you might be able to get a little bit through. But when we come out of the fire and we wear our turnout gear and then we shower, we're supposed to be removing all of that. But what we ended up seeing was if you had this material at, we were doing pure amounts on your skin, in two hours, it would start to get through the epidermal, so the outer layer. And then it took four to five hours to get through the thin, the thickness of the skin. But what that tells me is I have up to two hours to shower. So when I'm wearing my turnout gear directly against my skin, even if I'm just outside and it's cold, we've all thrown on our turnout gear, right? If you had short sleeves, you need to wash that skin to make sure that you did not get anything there. The issue we're gonna have with it is making sure that we're not just rolling around naked in our turnout gear, shouldn't be doing that, okay? I know, Jim, this is something that we all know you like to all, do this. All my photo shoots. Oh, yes, yeah. exactly. So the photo shoots are just ruins now. But reality is it takes quite a while to go through your skin. So the good news is wash it off your skin. Okay? So it's, it's, it's as easy as that. Wash it off your skin. Minimize your exposure. But we have to change the way we do business. Okay? We've got some people out there. Like I, I commend, I don't know if you've ever had, have you had Diane Carter on your 
show before. So I've had I've had Rob and I've had Graham, but I have not. Okay, had so she will completely tell you. I, I'm not a scientist. I'm a firefighter's wife, and I should not be the person pushing this agenda forward. However, nobody else is, so I am. And I commend her totally because when she started pushing it forward, we started hearing it more and more and more. And we all started doing more and more studies. So what she started pushing a few years ago, data is starting to come out now, which is fantastic because we can start showing you, yes, these are severe hazards, especially ingestion wise. All of us are getting large amounts. Everybody in the world is getting large amounts in their water supplies, in their food supplies. This is the one time that we get our payback on vegans because the, if you have it in the water supply, it likes to bioaccumulate in those lower leafy vegetables. So all of us meat eaters, we're going to stick to our PAHs and burn down our steaks while the leafy people um, start eating up a lot of this. But and I say that in jest, but reality is we are getting so much exposure to this from everywhere. Uh, we haven't found yet that we have firefighter exposures that are significantly different unless they were at a AFFF station, meaning uh, rescue firefighters at airports and stuff. They have got huge amounts of AFFF uh, exposure. And so you got a lot there. Hopefully we'll have more data on the turnout here over time. We're doing studies right now because my biggest concern is I would love to see new materials come out that would help us with the uh, water and oil penetration, okay? Minimizing it. But until we have something that will help us, that will not increase the PAH penetration, so that oil repellency helps us with the PAHs, right? And so we don't want to get more PAHs on the skin because we know they go through uh, more and faster and we have a higher concentration of exposure. So trying to balance all of that is really difficult um and we're, we're doing the science now unfortunately we don't have answers today the only answer we have and i think um actually dr peasley had it in his last paper was at the very end you see you know we've got some data we've got more we have to look through but take a shower okay it's the shower that is going to save you and it's so simple and it's minimizing the exposure the length of time it's on your skin so, All right. Well, thank you. <laughs> I know you're like, <laughs> about it. sorry. No, it's okay. I do think that and everybody's different from where I'm at. If you're first on scene, you're the last one to leave too. That's right. And we have so, to change that. Yeah. So, I mean, when you talk about two hour exposure, you know, I know I'm going to be on scene longer than that. So exactly. it's going to take, it's going to take three or four hours before I can get that shower in oftentimes. So now we're talking about stuff that is coming off. That's right. So can we change it by saying first in units are first out units? Okay. Second in units, third in units might be doing overhaul. First in units, maybe first out. Okay. And it, I'm saying it, it's going to take ways for us to think operationally how can we do better and we've got to sit down and logistically look at it and say how can we make sure that you're never exposed to those materials for more than an hour and a half to two hours if it means we bring a hazmat rig on site and we shower 
do we have an extra set of our uniforms for everybody? You know, what do we do then? I don't want you walking around naked, for God's sake. Well, <laughs> I don't know, Jim. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, you're fine. It's no, it's it's. I'm I'm glad that there's all these different studies going on. I'm I'm glad they're looking into it. I know, like you said, Diane has uh, definitely raised this issue to notoriety to where she raised the bar and made people look at it, which yes. is fantastic. She she did awesome. So, um, do you think that there is some type of alternative on the horizon, like in the in the near future? I don't know. We're looking at some stuff. Hopefully I have, um, Jeff Stoll and I have been looking at a new study on the PAHs and looking at some of the newer materials that are coming along in the research stage that don't have uh, PFOS type materials in them. And if we can get those to still repel the PAHs, then I think we might have something. We're doing those studies literally in the next two months. Um, we're going back and forth to the lab, designing the experiments right now. That's perfect. So that would be fantastic if we can find something that we can replace it with. Yeah. It's the All goal right. for everybody, but we're still trying to get there. Oh, I mean, I'm glad you're working on it. And yeah. uh, Jeff as well. And just, you know, the industry is just kind of realized something needs to be done. We've been lucky because the PPE industry, because we know them all from the standards, they've been giving us gear to use and materials and everybody's been participating. So we've not had really a bad interaction with any of the vendors. They're all 100% behind getting the science. So that's been fantastic. Because um, you get a lot of times in the hazmat side, especially where you have vendors like, yeah, no, we, we don't want to participate in that study. It's like, yeah, because you know your material's not going to pass. So, yeah. but we haven't had that in this study. So that's great. All right, perfect. Well, I'm almost ready to get you out of here. I appreciate your time. Now, let's see if we can have a little bit more fun. I got my 25 questions for you. These are all more just personal fun questions. Okay. So uh, I'm not going to make you go through 25 of them. That would, that would be rude. Although, <laughs> although it could be fun too, but no, <laughs> if you would... Just throw out a number. There's a question that, that's related to each number and we'll just, we'll do a few of these and then I'll, I'll get you out of here. 24. Alcoholic beverage of choice. I don't really drink. I'm this messed up without alcohol. Um, <laughs> so I actually, if, if I were to go somewhere and actually intentionally go out and buy a drink, it would probably be a pina colada. So I'm sorry, Fufu. That's a very Florida answer. I know, but it's just as yummy. What about favorite beverage? How about if I just did that? Diet Coke. Diet Coke. Okay. Can't live without it. I'm, I should actually just go to work for Coca-Cola and be their spokesperson of what god-awful things it can do to a body. But I probably drink a 12-pack of it a day. Okay. Well, then. All right. Uh. What's another number? Another number? Yeah, pick another number. Um, wait a minute. October 6th. So it's coming out on October 6th. So. Well, how do you manage stress? <laughs> Drink Maybe more Diet Coke? I, I'm kind of lucky that I don't have a lot of stress in my life. Um, 
I retired from the government. I don't have stress. No, <laughs> but no, uh, I would say science reading. Uh, as you can, I'm a, I'm a total dweeb. One of the things that I do as a volunteer thing, I don't know if you've ever heard of our emergency response decision support system. So it's a software, which we have a tool in there for fire exposure, where you can go through and say what types of fire you've been going to and what uh, job did you have at it and how many entries did you make? And it'll tell you when you should shower or what you should do to decon. So I didn't even bring that up. But that's one of the things I do for a hobby. We write it and we give it away free to first responders. And so it's got a lot of hazmat tools and that's kind of what I do on weekends and evenings. So. All right. <laughs> She's making the loser sign to me. Nobody <laughs> else can see it. <laughs> Nobody can see no, it. Yeah, nobody thinks that. We're happy you're on our side. <laughs> so yeah, that's really what I do for fun is really um, hike, walk, kayak, that kind of stuff. Sweet. And write software. <laughs> What's another number for you? Last one. Last one. Let's go with, is it 13? Favorite movie. Favorite movie. I'm trying to think of what my favorite movie would be. I don't even know. Um, I don't really watch TV or movies. Um, you want a different question? Yeah, different question. Sorry. That one stumped me. Okay. Out of, out of everything I've asked, that, that was clearly the most difficult thing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, pick another one out then. Zoo or amusement park? The zoo or amusement park? Yeah, you got to pick the one. The zoo, a thousand times over. Okay. Favorite at, animal? At best, if it's a zoo that is an amusement park, like Disney. No, we're not all in Florida or California. Animal Kingdom is the bomb. Yeah. <laughs> Everywhere else has separate places. I'm going to That's the zoo where you have to choose the yeah. zoo. Yeah. What animal would you go to see? First one. I'm, I very much love like the panda bears when they're doing silly stuff. And I like the uh, giraffes and all that kind of thing. So I love, I, I'm a, an animal freak. I, I got from a farm family. So one of my sisters is a dairy farmer and my other sister raises Clydesdale horses. So I am like an animal lover to an extent, except for frogs. And they can all just die, <laughs> preferably quickly. You live in a good place for. for I that. have two looking in my window at me right now, and they're freaking me out. So. <laughs> all right. So, where can everybody find you? Uh, well, the easiest way is to go through my website, Emergency Response Tips, and you can email me from there. I oh, have oh, another website. I, I, lo there. I lost you there. Oh, sorry. Say it again. <laughs> Easiest way is through my is just to get through my website, emergencyresponsetips.com. Um, I also have another website called rethinklevela.com, which is a one Jeff and I, Jeff Stoll and I do. And Jeff and I are just getting ready to release a new one that'll be called it's www.pfasandppe.com. And so we've been trying to put a lot of the data we're finding and research reports and papers there. 
and that one uh, we're trying to release along with when you do this. So those are easy ways. You can always get me at uh, Christina Baxter, all one word, at emergencyresponsetips.com. That takes forever to type, I know. Uh, and then phone number, my cell phone is 404-408-8779. And I never answer it, so text first to say what you're calling for, and then I'll answer it. Because generally it's like random people trying to sell my social security number or something. Auto warranty. Yeah, uh, well, auto car warranties. I'm like, yeah. yes, great, no. Yes, all right. But yeah. Well, thank, thank you so much for your time. Uh, for all my listeners, don't forget to share. Leave comments, five stars, and uh, that's really it. I'll, okay. uh, well, I'll talk to you all next fun. week. Yes, thank you. That was fun. And I'll see you in person, maybe, eventually, whenever we actually meet for 1585. Yeah, 1585. I think we're doing virtual coming up. So yeah, so maybe next, maybe next year, we'll be able to hang out and yeah. have a Diet Coke together. Or 10. Or 12. <laughs> All right. Well, cool. Have a good one. Dr. Baxter, thank you. Thanks.